0: A start On demand. On demand
1: Do you feel underpaid and overtaxed? As the election campaign continues, we'll talk about the myths and realities of our salaries and taxes in Manitoba compared to other provinces. Was talking about Activate on Monday. That's that gaming facility in Westwood that I went to over the weekend and loved it. Well, we have now learned they are expanding in a really big way. This is a great Winnipeg success story. And a new poll, they needed a poll to learn this. A new poll reveals many Canadians feel post-vacation blues before they return home. I know, it's shocking to learn that. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Tuesday, August 20th podcast for The Start. It is Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, she's here with us again. Good morning, Loren.
2: Why do you say it like that? Like it's a surprise?
1: Well, it's kind of a surprise, isn't it, Greg? <laughs> sort of like Haley's comment, I suppose. Yeah. We're, Greg and I were looking at each other like, Come saying, on. what day is, is Loren going to be with us this week? Do we just have her today?
2: I like to uh, I like to just drop in, you know, and be a surprise to you too. So yes, I get why you're saying that. I don't. I listened to the show. Was it Thursday where you're making fun of me and all my vacation days? So I had a good laugh at that. I'm around for a couple days this week.
3: We're more envious than anything, yeah. Lorraine. Trust us on that front. <laughs> and uh, I guess we just go to Scott Young at the Planetarium for your. For your schedule henceforth.
2: <laughs> I appear like what when the world spins every, you know, twenty-four hours after sixty-two days and a leap year or something like that. It's like moon phases, something exactly. like that. Exactly. exactly. I'll so, take that. So
1: when are you gonna get out to the Waverly underpass, Lauren?
2: You know, I saw all the pictures of that um going around Twitter yesterday, and uh, I'm super jealous. I do take that route in and out sometimes, like not often, but sometimes. More often, I'm taking the Marion route, which I know is a real thorn in your side too, Brett, in terms of railroad tracks and getting stopped at the train and all the rest. And so, uh, yeah, I'm I'm more jealous than anything because I won't be using the Waverly Underpass much.
1: Yeah, Greg, you were out there yesterday morning, and uh, then your description, Greg, was right because I drove by it. I had had an errand to run on Taylor and I drove by it and I just took a quick look to the right and it did look like, it looked like I was looking at the conceptual drawing because everything was so shiny and brand new. But I just thought, oh, that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Because uh, the Waverly, I think even worse than Marion, is uh, like a 50-50 chance every time. You are rolling the dice every time. You were. Oh, it feels good to say that. You were rolling the dice every time. Not so much anymore.
3: One of my brothers speculated on Twitter yesterday if this was the biggest news in Winnipeg since the return of the NHL. <laughs> <laughs> and there's some merit to that discussion, right? We, 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 a lot of us were pretty excited about this. I, I will use that underpass maybe three or four times a year, but just like the concert hall, just like Rainbow Stage, just like Assiniboine Park and the amenities that we have in the city, just because you don't need need them or use them on a regular basis doesn't mean they're not important, Loren.
2: No, and I think that that's a great point because at the end of the day, like, yes, you're jealous because you want it in your own neighborhood, but that doesn't mean the other neighborhood shouldn't get it. I was laughing, too. You know, I was imagining we always have these morning news meetings with other markets and having them saying, oh, look, what's going on in Winnipeg today? Oh, we got an underpass opening. Uh Uh-huh. Well, (laughs) it's kind of a big deal, Canada. You know? (laughs) Why is it not on the front page of the Globe this morning? I mean, it's a big deal for us because we get stopped at trains, All the time in this city. So, yeah, I get the excitement.
3: We smashed a bottle of champagne on a new culvert over the, (laughs) uh, on the Omen's Creek. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's big big town, small city stuff.
1: And I actually remember watching an episode of The Amazing Race Canada a couple of seasons ago when they were in Winnipeg. And I don't know where, I I couldn't actually identify the location, just the way that it was shot. But one of the teams was in a cab and they got stuck at a train. And I thought, well, that's a quintessential Winnipeg experience (laughs) for these visiting racers. Uh, So it was was even featured prominently on national television, the the Daily Plight that Winnipeggers face. Also, to, we're going to talk a lot more about that at 645. What should Winnipeg's next big infrastructure project be? And you can text us now, 204-780-6868. Uh, I was awoken at 1240 this morning by the beginning of a thunderstorm. Did
3: did it hit your area, Greg? Oh, big time. And uh, for the first time, um, we've got a little shih tzu. Her name is Abby. And for the first time in in 11, 12 years, she was clearly horrified of what was going on. And I'm guessing that she was hearing more of the thunder that was a little bit further away than we were hearing clearly, but she was shaking and panting. And uh, to the point, I considered maybe taking her to the animal hospital because it seemed like maybe she was in a different sort of distress, but Google eased my mind and how to tell. If your dog is afraid of thunder, was a very good Google search for me at about 1.15 this morning because uh, she exhibited all the symptoms of being afraid of thunder. But in 11, 12 years, never seen that from her before. So, yeah, it disrupted my sleep just a tiny bit. McNabb, did it hit your area?
2: Oh, yeah. And the thunder, or the thunder wasn't as frightening as the just the light show for me. Like, it woke me up. It wasn't the thunder that woke me up. It was the flash of lights in the window. And so I wonder if that was the difference for your dog. Maybe not the noise, but the, the display. Because it, it was so bright that I couldn't sleep for a, a good hour.
1: Yeah, I, I, I didn't fall back asleep. I've been at 1240, and I, the, storm, the storm wasn't super disruptive, but it was enough to, as soon as I would kind of start nodding off, there would be another blast that would just kind of keep me awake. But on the subject of dogs, Greg, I remember once I was house-sitting, and uh, this dog's name was Norman. I called him Stormin' Norman because he was this big, grumpy German Shepherd who <laughs> barked at everything that went by the house. And, but when there was a thunderstorm, he was such a suck. He came, wanted to come into the room and jump. He jumped on the bed. He needed me to cuddle him. It was. I was actually really cute and sweet. This big, burly. Ah, I'm an angry dog, but when there's thunder, I'm a little scaredy cat. So.
2: I've had friends with dogs who during a thunderstorm will eat their way out of whatever room they're in. Like they might be locked in a room for the day and they've come home and the thunderstorm's been so scary for the dog that it's chewed its way through the door. Wow. Out into the living room. Yeah.
1: My dad actually. Holy moly. My, we have so a-
2: your shih tzu's not doing that. I don't think she's, that little gal's doing that, Greg.
1: No. I'll have to ask my dad because we have a hole on the back of our uh, laundry room door at my my parents' house um that my their their dog missy at the time scratched her way through some god 40 years ago i guess maybe more and i don't know what the why she was in there or what was going on but uh we'll have to see if it was storm related because it would be noisy and uh it's still funny that it's 40 years later it's still there
3: well, maybe it's an ode, or or it's an homage to, to uh, what's the dog's name, Missy? I hated that dog, Missy. But, <laughs> but, but
1: my parents loved, uh, adored her, so I shouldn't uh, speak ill of Missy. Oh,
2: poor Missy.
1: Mackling, McGarry, and McNab. Whether it's finding daycare, an affordable apartment closer to school, or booking music lessons, hockey lessons, curling lessons for our kids. Many of us are ramping up this time of year, trying to get more organized, Loren, while always keeping an eye on our bottom line.
2: And when it comes to our finances, I think one of the things many of us have simply come to accept, or perhaps we just like try to ignore it, is that a big chunk of our salary will be taken in taxes. The question we're asking this morning is, are you aware of how much more you might be putting into provincial taxes or to the provincial income tax than other provinces. Global's Amber Magookin has been looking at the numbers as part of our election coverage and also looking at what the leaders and parties are promising when it comes to taxes or possible tax reduction and joins us now from of Germain. Good morning, Amber. Morning, guys. So we've heard this before. We're not competitive compared to other provinces. What do the numbers show in terms of how bad that might be, if, if that's how we're going to frame it in terms of good or bad?
4: Right. So I've got some numbers that show kind of the western part of the country. And um, there's a couple key things that people have, um, experts have kind of pointed out to me. Um, one of the things that's really important to note is we, from what we're hearing, we're getting taxed quite early on, quite high. So our highest tax bracket right now is about just over $70,000. And at that point, you're getting taxed about 17%. The highest tax bracket in other Provinces like British Columbia is over $150,000. In Alberta, it's over $300,000. In Saskatchewan, over $130,000. So our highest tax bracket is around that 17%. Other provinces don't hit close to that 17% until people are earning, you know, in Alberta, $300,000. In BC, $153,000 in Saskatchewan 130. So what we're hearing from experts is that, you know, people are making these, you know, not obscene salaries but getting in our highest tax bracket. The other thing to note is just how we're getting taxed our 10% rate which is up to about $32,000 is the same rate people in other provinces are getting for even higher. So in Alberta that 10% kicks in before $130,000. In BC, it's around up to $93,000. So even in Saskatchewan, that 10% comes in, it's about 12% up to $130,000. So experts are saying we're getting taxed quite highly, quite early on here in Manitoba.
3: I know the, the conversation quickly switches for me, Amber, when we talk about the other costs of living, housing in particular. Uh, we all know the Vancouver average house prices uh, hovering around a million dollars. Uh, if I were to move back to BC, it would be to Vernon or Kelowna where I used to live. Eight hundred and ninety-seven thousand dollars for an average price uh, house in uh, Kelowna. Four hundred and twenty-eight thousand dollars is the average price for a house in Edmonton, and four hundred fifty-six thousand in Calgary versus three twelve in Winnipeg. So some of those other costs of living have to come into effect when we have this discussion. But the, the tax side it can be frustrating and and seems to be a, a focus for not only the Conservatives but a lot of business groups as well.
4: Right. Yeah. We were hearing from business groups just about even recruiting employees can be difficult when, uh when there's someone who's looking at different salaries across different provinces and they're seeing maybe a higher income here, yet when they actually do the math, they're realizing their take-home pay would be a little less. Um, We did hear from the business council that that's something that they found is frustrating. I'm trying to recruit those people here. Um, We were hearing just like part of it was trying to get, if you try to get people here when they're young, they might get married here, they might have kids here, they might put roots here, and then they might stay here and then be long-term contributing to our tax system. So it is an interesting conversation. I do have some Numbers too on um, just comparing how how those numbers come into play. We did hear from the Knowledge Bureau in my research about how if you're a single high income earner, Manitoba might not be the best spot for you. Um, but if you are a family and you you might have other tax credits, this is you're kind of comparable to some other provinces pretty closely. But if we look at for one example we have here that the Knowledge Bureau put together for me, if you are making about sixty two thousand dollars a year, your provincial tax in Manitoba is about fifty eight. $100, about $5,900 a year. Saskatchewan, they're paying $1,000 less than that. And in Alberta, it's $2,000 less than that in your take home pay. So when you are doing your own personal math, everyone's story is a little bit different. You know, your, your cost of living, you can make your own choices in that. So it is a different, different situation for different people. But when you do look at these numbers, there are some differences from Manitoba.
2: So we know the PST factored big uh, in the last election, in the sense of the promise, promise made or a promise broken, and and the conservatives have reduced that now back down to seven percent. When it comes to just the income tax that we're talking about, is there any promises from anyone out there to make uh, to to lower it or change the thresholds so we're not paying so much so early on, Amber, or is it just bits and pieces we're hearing so far?
4: Yeah, we have. I've, i reached out to all the parties. Um, we did hear from the PCs that they're looking to change the basic allowance and those brackets that we're talking about, those income brackets to the rate of inflation. The NDP say they're going to do the exact same thing, but they're going to also create another tax bracket for those making $250,000 or more. They didn't tell me what that number would be yet. They said they would, you know, reveal more as the time goes on. Um, the liberals are promising to create an independent commission for a fair tax review. The Green Party did not um, get back to me.
3: Uh, We were talking, I mentioned health premiums earlier, and Alberta did in fact eliminate its health premium that I did pay once upon a time when I lived in Alberta. But BC has them, and it's $75 per adult per month. So that would swallow up a ton of your tax savings pretty quick if you're in that higher tax bracket uh, at $150 a month for two adults in a family.
4: Right. I think there's a number of smaller things we were hearing, you know, I was talking to experts too, and they were saying, you know, the different parties are promising all these little changes and yes, they do add up. But at the end of the day, what you're taking home is one, of, is obviously the biggest factor and how much money you have. So if your income tax is changed, then you might, you might you'll have more money. And one of, the, one of the experts I was talking to too said, you know, it's great to have the PST change if you want to have people spending money, but it's that take home pay that is the biggest impact for people. <music>
1: Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, Jeff Braun is here, Cam Poitras is here, Jeff Fortier. Question of the day at cjob.com from yesterday afternoon, brought to you by Credit Aid. Helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992, visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. Now that the Waverly underpass is finished, what do you think should be Winnipeg's next big infrastructure project? So Greg, here are the choices. Widening Keniston, Mm -hmm. extending Chief Peguis to Brookside Boulevard, rebuilding the Arlington Bridge, new underpass on Marion. Which one do you think came out on top? Oh, Route 90, probably by a landslide. McNabb, what do you think?
2: Mm, I think I'd agree.
1: Yeah, and it was widening Keniston Boulevard with 50% of the vote, followed by extending Chief Pegwist to Brookside with 16, rebuilding the Arlington Bridge with 13, new underpass on Marion with 12, and then uh, 9% voted other with uh, one comment... Dougal the road between Plessis and the East Perimeter using the word road is totally inaccurate. It is a walking trail at <laughs>
5: Come best.
3: On. Yeah, it's one I lane need- in each direction with a variety of different uh, intersections, either to businesses and uh, a couple of streets out there. It is, uh, it is a rural route. For sure. Uh, McNabb, what were you going to say?
2: Well, I, one of the things that always comes up is the south perimeter. And I know they're looking into that. And, it, and, again, it's one of those things that depends on how often and where you're traveling. But for me, the big money spender expenditure, and, again, I get that's probably more of a provincial thing, right? City dollars won't necessarily go into that. But that's dangerous. That south perimeter is dangerous. The whole perimeter with all the lights. Yeah. It's ridiculous.
3: So if we were voting here, I know, Brett, you and I have been talking a long time probably since our second or third show together three years ago, that this would be one of the priorities that we would put at the top of the list is getting rid of all the traffic signals on the perimeter highway. Jeff Braun, what about you? Yeah. Uh, I also thought of both the perimeter when I was thinking about what I'd like to see the most, but I, I'd like that St. Norbert bypass to get built. This yeah. it's quick, on my list too. That connects the south perimeter to highway 75. So you don't have to dip back into the city. And then it's 50 on that stretch of Pemina through St. Norbert too. It's, it's annoying for me in my little sedan, but like for the truckers, I can't imagine. What I pain can't imagine that is. either. It's, and it's an odd way to enter the city. It's like, oh, yeah. here, this is Winnipeg. Wow, <laughs> uh, Cam. With uh, all due respect to Saint Norbert.
0: Yeah, um, I'm I'm biased because I grew up in the in the Northeast, so I I, I would go for cheap pegways all the That's way what to I was uh, say. Brookside. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, even uh, when they when they put it up from Lash, I mean, it's just been. Awesome, the change there. It's just been it's been night and day. People were had to take McIver all the way up, or they had to take Springfield, and it was just a it was just a mess. So that going all the way to Route ninety would just be absolutely fantastic. But I'm completely biased. I never go near Keniston. I'm sh- I, I I avoid it for all those reasons as to yeah Keniston is so horrible. bad. I don't even go anywhere near it. Um, but I would I would have to say mine is Cheepigwas. What about you, McNabb?
2: Well, I think the thing with Keniston is that. Um, No matter what time of day you're on it, I think it's brutal, which I've learned since moving over to CJOB Studios at Polo Park. But then I don't think widening Keniston by one lane is going to have a huge impact there. I really don't think that's going to be this big thing where, you know, as soon as that's built, the next day everyone's going to be like, oh, great. Like, I can finally drive down Keniston with ease. Like, you'd have to. It's just it's not going to do it with one lane. So we have to do something totally different there if that's the concern. So I don't know. Yeah, I just, I don't, I don't see, or like hover cars. We need to just get into the future more quickly and have hovercrafts or whatever to go around each other. But I don't, I just don't see that being like this big thing that's going to make a huge difference and it's going to cost so much money. So I just feel like there's other things we could be doing. I don't want to open a can of worms and get Greg all riled up, but like moving the rail lines would solve so many problems in so many parts of the cities. If that is even a doable thing.
3: Well, we had this conversation when we had Matt Allard on the the show last week or the week before on this this whole notion that they spent tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to bring this proposal, this 400 million plus proposal for Marion Archibald underpass to city council. Could you not just please spend a similar amount and find out the actual cost to move the rail yards, the actual funding uh, that is available to do so, and what would be the benefit to the city and the cost savings for not having to replace the Arlington Bridge and other underpasses, other bridges, etc. I just, you know, please can we have an accurate accounting of what this would cost? And not to mention a fact, in, and you're going to get me riled up just on the Route 90 thing, you can do all you want, and I've said this at least a dozen times in the last couple of years, from Ness to Taylor. But what are you going to do from IKEA to the B- Bishop Grand and flyover? That is as much of a bottleneck, maybe even more so than that four or five blocks uh, Academy to to Taylor. And the other thing is, in all these discussions, we have uh, nine to ten infrastructure projects for cars and trucks. Nobody mentions LRT or BRT, anything with regard to transit. And as the saying goes, if you're in traffic and you're yelling at traffic and you hate the traffic, guess what? You are the traffic.
1: Yeah, my biggest things are trains. So that's why I don't know where I stand on this. I would love to see a new underpass on Marion. And uh, that's why I'm so thrilled that Waverly is now open but yesterday i would also like to see something done about route 90 as well like i was uh, heading south on route 90 and sure enough, I hit a log jam as soon as I got over the St. James Bridge because traffic was down to one lane at Tuxedo. And I think I ended up bailing out on Willow, which takes me into the the Asper campus there. I don't know why I did that because I just ended up sitting there for five minutes as like <laughs> dozens of pedestrians were crossing at this crosswalk that I had to go through. And I had to wait for that and make my way, eventually snake my way back to Route 90. I should have just bit the bullet and sat there for another five minutes. But it's a pain. There's always construction during the day on Route 90 and that in those bottlenecks. And then as you mentioned, Greg, yeah, okay, great. So we widen it for three lanes up until a point and then what? It's back down to two lanes.
3: No question about it. Now for the uh, Northeast City guys, one of our listeners says, "Lage at... Regent, an Mm. interchange there. It's Winnipeg's busiest intersection. Yeah,
0: well, that would be a great idea. I mean, how many times have have I sat in traffic at that, uh, that intersection, too? So... There's there's so much stuff to do, and, and I I think a lot of this, and, and just like what you were talking about, Greg. I mean, uh, when it comes to LRT and that kind of stuff, this has to be a part of the conversation moving forward because it is so important. And if you want to we got to talk about getting cars off the roads, and we got to make it easy for people to use transit, because everybody's in a car and it's causing it's causing the traffic and all of these issues. Got to get people on the buses, make it easy. And we'll see the difference when yeah. once everything starts going. I
2: wish we had trains. Like, my brother lived in New Zealand, and he said he loved it because he was able to jump on the bus, jump on the train, get to work in, like, a quarter of the time it takes in this city. It's ridiculous.
1: Wow. Well, and, of course, we got the, the, the quintessential suggestion, as we always do. Time
3: for a monorail. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Just like the Simpsons.
3: Yeah, the monorail, the time maybe has passed for that. We're going to be in Vancouver on Saturday on our way to California, and we have a four-hour layover. So I looked at how long it takes SkyTrain from, mm-hmm. from the
2: airport to downtown. Yeah.
3: 25 yeah. minutes. You
2: could actually go downtown, Craig, for an hour, have lunch, and get back and still catch your flight. I mean, it'd be tight, but you could do it. Wow. Wow. <laughs>
3: As you know by now, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers confirmed yesterday the team's starting quarterback is suffering from an, what's officially being called an upper body injury, but they hope. He will be back soon, and as soon as possible. In the meantime, he has been placed on the team's six-game injured list. Mike O'Shea says Matt Nichols will be reassessed in four weeks and expects him to be back somewhere around the game six timeline. Nichols was at practice without a sling, moving his right arm gingerly, and Mike O'Shea confirms that there is no surgery required. Nichols was sacked by BC Lions defensive lineman Sean Lemon with about nine minutes left in the fourth quarter Thursday night at IG field. He fumbled the ball and right away walked to the dressing room, appearing to favor his throwing arm.
6: Nichols fakes to Harris. Scrambles. And he fumbles. He's hit by Sean Lemon and the BC Lions have recovered at the bomber 25-yard line. So here we go with turnovers again. Making a dramatic change and Nichols has hurt his right arm on that play too
7: just in the pocket too long not pulling the trigger on anything and what a change of events and momentum
6: it looks to me like Nichols might be heading to the bomber locker room he's hurt his right arm right shoulder this does not look good for him Matt Nichols can you tell us anything Mike
8: no I can't I haven't even been in there to to talk to anybody so uh, he's a tough guy imagine he's I imagine he's gonna be fine
6: Certainly didn't look like he was going to be fine the way he left the field. Yeah, holding his right arm down at his side. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. You always sort of take the best approach to these things. Um, if and and then we'll move on. If Chris Streveler has to take the controls, how do you think he'll fare?
8: I think he'll be excellent. That's a big if. I don't really deal in ifs. We'll we'll cross that bridge when we when we come to it. But full confidence in Chris Streveler. Obviously, he's won game. He's won some games for us.
3: Obviously, we have reached the bridge. We are crossing the bridge, heading towards Friday night. Brett, last night on the coach's show with Bob Irving and head coach Mike O'Shea, the coach has, says this too shall pass. There's, there's a, from some other callers and text messages here, there's the the feeling
8: uh, of a bit of doom and gloom, and there's no one in our clubhouse, not even Matt Nichols, that is feeling that. No. Um, there's still a great desire to win every football game and belief uh, that we will um, yeah, no. And there's also the added fact if you want to go the crossover way, that there's no, there has not been a
1: team that's crossed over that's ever been, uh, that's ever won the Grey Cup. So, this leaves a hole on, on the bomber roster for another quarterback. Mackling and Doug Brown hashed out
3: that part of the QB situation on the latest yet-to-be-released edition of the Blue Bomber podcast. Conversation started over the weekend. The idea that the Blue Bombers have spoken to Kevin Glenn. You've heard Brandon Bridge's name being mentioned and... Willie Drew, Peg, Drew Willie, for those unfamiliar with his nickname, Once Upon a Time. That's not to come in and to start these games while Matt Nichols is in the infirmary. This is to back up Chris Streveler, just so that's clear to people. Well, whether uh, they'd be a
7: number two or number three, we, we don't really know. It depends on the development of the the current number three right now on the roster, right? So he was a surprise uh, uh, keeper on, on the roster Sean for Maguire, me. Sean McGuire, we're talking Sean about McGuire as opposed to Brian Bennett, right? Who they got rid of because I, I thought he was uh, primed and poised, certainly be a different. And the funny thing about about McGuire and or uh, Bennett, what he was before, these are all guys more. These are all pocket friendly guys that are more suited to be able to step in and do what Nichols was doing as opposed to straler's just it's a game changer right and and you don't necessarily know if it is it gonna be awesome is it gonna you know be very limiting uh what is it gonna because this is his second uh a second opportunity for four quarters of four quarters at a time not just spurts not just little injections in the offense where we're like oh no it looks like he's progress-. you don't really know till he gets 40, 50 snaps over the course of a game, uh, if his passing's improved, if his reads are... And it's just processing, right?
1: Now, head coach Mike O'Shea told us last night that a veteran pivot is something that will happen as soon as possible. You're crazy if you think that you're going to uh,
8: not bring in a third quarterback. I mean, you're, you're one injury away again from being down to one. So you have to get another one. And if we bring... A guy in with completely zero experience and no uh, training camp in our play with our playbook, uh, you're not setting up your team for success. And and the entire team understands that even though Matt Nichols is out, they expect to win and they expect the decisions to be made from from the top to be good decisions that allow us to win football games. So um, I think the one of the things we looked at was bringing in an experienced a veteran quarterback, you know? So that doesn't mean that Chris Treveller isn't the starter and doesn't mean that Sean McGuire is not the, not the next guy in. It just means that the smart play is to bring a guy who's seen CFL defenses, who's throwing passes, throwing touchdowns in the CFL. That makes the most sense because your team
3: is counting on you to do that. The Blue Bombers head to Edmonton Friday night. Talk about baptism under fire for Chris Trevler, brett in his first start and over a calendar year. Edmonton's defense is playing excellent football right now. Our coverage gets underway at 6 with kickoff at 8 on your voice of the Blue Bombers, 680 CGOB, and uh, the podcast should be out this afternoon with Doug and myself. If you subscribe to the podcast, you also get the coaches show delivered to your inbox. That's new this year. Ooh,
1: I like that. That is great to know. So, again, make sure you subscribe to those podcasts and you will get all of your information on the blue and gold right here from 680 CJOB. Again, Breakfast with the Bombers brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. We start this hour with something that has dominated headlines for days. And back in the spring, ruled many conversations around the supper table. But as the SNC-Lavalin scandal changed the way you will vote in the federal election this fall?
2: Days after a damning report found Prime Minister Justin Trudeau broke federal ethics with his political interference in the SNC-Lavalin scandal... A new poll done exclusively for Global News and CJOB found the Liberals and the Tories are actually in a virtual dead heat. These are the numbers. The Tories have captured 35% of decided voters in this recent poll. The Liberals, 33%. Global's David Aiken is the chief political correspondent for Global News and joins us now. And David, I don't know if it surprises the right word, but I'm sure there are many people out there that thought this whole scandal was going to be hugely damaging for the Liberals. And, and these numbers don't necessarily show that.
9: Well, you know what? I think it was hugely damaging for the liberals, but it was hugely damaging seven or eight months ago when we first learned about these allegations. And I think and well I know at that time, Ipsos and many other pollsters found that the Liberals took a big hit uh, in their support when these allegations first surfaced that the Prime Minister interfered uh, on behalf of montreal construction giant sNC Lavalant. but ever since then, the liberal numbers have slowly but surely strengthened, and so last week, essentially we had the confirmation from the ethics commissioner, Mario Dion that Trudeau broke the law, and so you know, my read of it, and I think it's the pollster's read as well, is that however you felt about Trudeau's behavior, so far as SNC-Lavalin concerned, you're feeling him sort of baked in. And so if you thought that Trudeau was way offside and did something wrong seven months ago, you still feel the same way. And those who support the prime minister's intervention in support of jobs, that's what he claimed he was doing, trying to protect jobs, you you still support him. And, in fact, if you look deep into the regional numbers on the polls We see in Quebec where Trudeau's very popular for, quote, standing up for Quebec jobs. And in this poll, his Quebec numbers have actually improved. And the Liberals now have a 19-point gap. uh, They're leading in Quebec over the second-place Conservatives. And so that is, uh, you know, that's important for the Liberals. It's important for the future election we're going to see. I think the Liberals will do very well in Quebec, and then they're going to pick some seats up, probably at the expense of the NDP. And the way the vote plays out nationally, nationally, as you said, the top line is pretty much a tie, but the way it plays out, because of the efficiency of the Liberal vote, they're going to do still very well in Ontario, they're going to hold a lot of what they have in Manitoba. I think some of the, the Liberal seats in the, the south and southwest of the city of Winnipeg may turn blue again, as they were in, in, during the Harper years, um, but overall, the Liberals will have enough, pick up enough seats in Quebec, they could still win a strong minority, even a majority even though they may lose the popular vote at the end of the day. That is the sort of, that's our first-past-the-post system, and this is a function of the fact that though there's lots of opposition to the liberals, it really hasn't coalesced yet around any one opponent, conservatives, green, or NDP.
3: David Aiken I am old enough to remember when. Uh, Justin Trudeau's father won a majority government without a seat west of Winnipeg. Lloyd Mm -hmm. Axworthy was the lone liberal in uh, his government. Obviously, population and demographics have shifted westward. I don't know if that would be possible again, but based on what you just outlined, a a minority liberal government with very little support from Western Canada certainly is a a potential reality.
9: Well, I think, in fact, you could. That there are scenarios, and there's, we've got a seed model forecast going. Our friends at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University have a similar one. And right now the numbers are shaping up that you could see Justin Trudeau do what his dad did, win a majority, with just one seat between Winnipeg, and the lower mainland in B.C., and that would be Ralph Goodale there in Regina. Goodale uh, is running again, and he, he seems, though the Conservatives are really trying to take him down, that riding has changed demographically over the years. It's more small-c Conservative. Uh, Goodale still seems to be uh, hold his own. But, but that's what we could have here. We do have some really strong regional variations. Manitoba is kind of in the middle. Manitoba is likely to elect a lot of conservatives in uh, rural Manitoba, uh, and possibly, as they say, in the south and southwest of the city. I think we may see a New Democrat or two from Manitoba. Uh, Nikki Ashton likely to hold her seat way up north in, uh, in the Kuatnuk riding. Um, but the Liberals are still going to have, you know, four, between, I think, four and six seats. I think they hold seven right now. Uh, in Winnipeg, but once you start getting onto the prairies, onto Saskatchewan, that uh, looks like it's going to be a conservative wipeout, except for uh, Goodale, Alberta. Absolutely, the Conservatives are going to win. Their popular vote for the Conservatives there is, you know, it goes up and up and up, 55%, 60%, etc. But this is the problem for the Conservatives. They can keep increasing the popular vote in Saskatchewan and Alberta, but they can't win any more seats. And you got to have more seats than the other guy. And this is where we come back to in Ontario the Ipsos poll shows a slim lead arguably a statistical tie between liberals and conservatives and for liberals that means they're still going to be very dominant in Toronto where there's a lot of seats other sort of urban areas and that gives them enough of a firm footing that this is what they can they can base a a uh, strong minority and as they say possibly even a majority on and all this is to say campaigns matter and and there's there's a lot of headwinds for the liberals in fact given where they were a year ago they shouldn't even be it shouldn't be close they were heads in a way, the favorites a year ago, but they did shoot themselves in the foot with the snc Lavalan thing, the India trip. All of these things have added up to make it a real race over the next seven weeks.
1: Global's David Aiken Chief Political Correspondent for Global News, joining us live on 680 CJOB. David, thank you as always. Yeah, no problem, guys. Cheers. So, Greg, a couple of announcements yesterday caught your attention.
3: Yeah, Brian Pallister said that a re-elected PC government in Manitoba would, would, would put $10 million toward crime reduction. That's in particular in the downtown. And uh, that announcement announcements made at true, North Square. Pallister says families should never have to feel afraid about undertaking activities in the city core. He says the Manitoba Police Commission has been instructed to develop recommendations on increased foot patrols, more surveillance cameras improved lighting and a stronger enforcement of panhandling laws. And I think this is something that we've been talking for an awful long time that, uh, for me anyway, the tipping point for Winnipeg's downtown is going to be how we handle uh, the panhandling situation and an overall feeling of safety. McNabb, I know you sort of go back and forth on this as to whether or not you feel safe or unsafe in the downtown. I think you're on the mostly safe side. I'm on the, not personally for the most part, but in terms of, My family's feeling on it. We're on the mostly unsafe side of the equation.
2: Yeah, I and I you know I was just downtown uh last week with my boys. I had a meeting downtown at the Chamber of Commerce and um was walking away with them and you know, you notice different things that you're more aware of, maybe when you're with your kids, you know, you see some of the more panhandling or or incidents that you might think, Okay, well I might walk the long way around, you know, that area right now just so I don't have to go through whatever may be happening down there. But generally I still feel like overall daytime at least, a relative sense of safety. This is where I what what I do have frustration with is, and this is where people I think get jaded in elections is that we've been talking about this for months now and the concern from women about whether there's a perception of a rise in crime or whether that's a reality. We know the numbers show there is a huge spike in all sorts of crimes. And then you get to an election and promises get made. And so you have people out there saying, well, where were, you know, where was the look into more foot patrols or better lighting and, and all these kinds of things six months ago or eight months ago or 10 months ago? But I, I guess that's the nature of elections. But that's where one of my frustrations lies, that whether you do feel safe or You don't. You've been looking for some change for some time, regardless of where the politics are in this.
3: I think that uh, is a perfectly uh, made point, Loren, and the whole idea. It's difficult. I understand it's difficult when you are the party in power and you are running for re-election. There may be some things that are apparent, but perhaps there hasn't been money in the budget or all of a sudden now. It feels like perhaps you've been keeping this idea in your back pocket, waiting for the election campaign. There could be two sides of this.
2: Yeah, and I think that that is the the thing that you have to watch for, you know. And why now? And and why wouldn't this have worked earlier? or is it just politics? And it's easy to point fingers and say you're just playing politics now with crime. And, and maybe just, you're right, you make a point, you have money in some budgets and not the others, but I can appreciate where the public has their that sense of being jaded. And, and then another topic that's also been talked a ton and, and rehashed over and over again is the idea of safe injection sites. And Wob Canoe and the NDP had an announcement on what they would do if elected on that yesterday, Greg.
3: Yeah, they said that they would open uh safe injection site, uh, Wob Canoe saying they would expand addiction treatment programs and establish a meth intervention program. They say this measure would cost the NDP, by the way, uh, say it would cost $3.5 million a year and reduce the number of used needles found around the city. I just, I have a hard time with this whole safe consumption site, not because it doesn't work for, in some communities with regard to opioids and also uh, with regard to heroin and, and getting people off of heroin, but... I think there's a misconception, and once again, and I've thrown this out on social media, I've mentioned it here on the air, no one has been able to come back to me and say, Mackling, you're wrong on this. As far as I know, there is no such thing as a safe consumption site for meth. I think that's a recipe for disaster. Uh, a mess psychosis versus somebody who's taking other drugs the professionals and everything that you would need around to stand around and and observe these people taking these drugs I I think would be astronomical, not only in terms of cost, but I think it would be uh, insane to go down Sorry. that road.
2: And Greg, you mean there is such a thing in, in that they might have them, but you you think the no such thing part is the safe? No such thing as it being a safe place? Is I don't that think, what you
3: came at? I don't think there's a safe injection site anywhere that invites people to consume meth as part of the uh, safe consumption site model.
2: I'd have to look into some of the ones in B.C. because I noticed with the announcement yesterday, different people were tweeting about the cities that have safe injection sites for drugs, whether whether it be meth or not, and what that has or has not done to the population of that city or the, or the safety of that city or whether that's helped or increased or decreased. I know I, I'm looking in, online right now about, um, it's, it's on heretohelp.bc.ca, so it's talking about BC, and it talks about safer injection of opioids, crack, and crystal meth. Mm, boy. But, but I don't, uh, you, you make a good point about what actually is being done in some of those injection sites. What is the actual drug, and then what has the impact been or on you the community? Can-
1: You can weigh in at 204-780-6868. Shoot us a text anytime. You can email Mackling at CJOB.com, McNabb at CJOB.com, or Brett at (laughs) CJOB.com. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Big news today about something we told you about yesterday. Over the weekend, I finally visited Activate. It's a 13,000-square-foot gaming center in Westwood at 3338 Portage Avenue in the Westwood Village Shopping Mall. And it's got something for everyone there. You can shoot targets with laser guns. You can shoot hoops and answer trivia while you do it. You can climb around a rock wall before the rocks change color and get you. You can throw balls up at targets, crawl under laser beams like you're robbing a bank. Run around a room full of tiles that change color like you're in a music video, like Billie Jean, or like you're Indiana Jones trying not to step on the wrong letter. It is incredible. I could go on and on, and it's a tremendous value. 25 bucks gets you 90 minutes of playtime, and it's even a solid workout. And it's the first center of its kind anywhere. Back in May, we spoke to one of the creators and co-owners, Adam Schmidt, who, along with his wife, Megan, also created and co-own The Real Escape. Yesterday, I emailed Adam just to tell him how much fun it was over the weekend, and he replied by sharing some big news. So he's here in studio to share that news with you. Adam Schmidt, welcome back, sir. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm doing very well, very well. Uh, Before we share the news... Was my description of your facility accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, perfect. Did I leave yeah. anything out? You're hired. Okay, <laughs> okay, all right. We <laughs> miss you, Brett. <laughs> uh, so the first thing I wanted to, to get from you is is my reaction to the place, the typical reaction that you get the the oh my god, that was so much fun. Yeah,
10: absolutely. I think people come in the first time and they're surprised at how active it really is. So maybe they're not dressed appropriately the first time, but. Everybody comes back and they're dressed appropriately the second time, and uh, it's funny watching people walk in. It's they look like they're going into the gym.
1: Yeah, I mean, some of my guys actually brought uh, a gym bag with them because yeah. they had they. I think they ran to the washroom and changed because I yeah. told them ahead of time. It's I hear it's a workout, so yeah. don't yeah. come. Although one of the guys still wore a shirt and jeans, and he seemed perfectly content. He'd yeah. been there oh, before yeah. too. Yeah. So, yeah. so what's the big news?
10: So uh, yeah, as soon as we started, we've been getting a lot of. Uh, Reaction from around the world people have been uh, Asking for franchise information Uh, We're not so interested in doing that yet, but uh, we did sign a major deal with uh, the the largest uh, escape room company in the United States Um, They are putting in ten stores to start my goodness Yeah, and
1: they're ten stores for activate or the real escape
10: ten stores for activate Wow! So they'll be in ten major cities, uh, and they got to do it pretty quick. Uh, we're gonna mirror that uh, and put them up throughout Canada. So corporately, yeah, we'll own about twenty stores throughout uh, Canada.
3: And for those that did not tune in and and aren't familiar uh, with your with what you're doing here in Winnipeg, you've created all this technology here in our city, right? Yeah, you, you build it here, you make it here.
10: Yeah, uh, it's all made and designed by Winnipeggers, programmers builders uh we have a warehouse just north of the airport uh so we're making and designing all the components that are going in so we're uh we have about a 5000 square foot facility which is going to be small pretty quickly uh, here i think and, uh, yeah, so we're just uh, just trying to compile all the components. for. Like, there's about 30,000 components that have to go into each one of these facilities, and then we're going to have to truck them out to every uh, location. So we're in the process of trying to figure out what, what we need to do here. <laughs> um, I'd be lying if I said I know what I'm doing.
2: <laughs> so,
1: so, so you're not just sending out the specs. Like you guys are going to create everything yeah, for yeah, them.
10: Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah. Go set it up. You'll have to do some training, I imagine. This is uh, yeah. So we're, a lot of hands-on stuff, Yeah, right? we're setting
10: up an uh, installation crew. Uh, we have a manufacturing crew that's uh, got to be on time to, to make sure these are going out on time. We've got to hire project managers now to make sure that the, these facilities are going up every couple months. And then they're going to ship out... Um, and uh, yeah, it'll be awesome because there'll be the one cool thing about Activate is uh, it's almost like a new sport. And so uh, we're having a tournament of champions in January. So it's the top 50 scores of uh, the facility. Uh, will compete against each other. But once we get all of these uh, Activates up around North America and potentially the world, uh, you'll not only be competing against people in Winnipeg, but people in Cincinnati and Mexico City and because all the rooms are the exact same.
3: So forgive me for thinking out loud and on the fly but I, I'm just imagining some sort of competition on the floor of Bell MTS Place with all your games set up and, yeah. and massive spectators <laughs> yeah. almost like the American Gladiators yeah, set up hopefully be where the... you could have a, a tournament of champions here in Winnipeg and and I think it would be fantastic to highlight what you've done here. How many employees do you have now and, and what do you see as the as the growth because let's face it from the outside that's what a lot of people measure your success by is, is how many people are working for you
10: so between the two companies we have about 70 employees um we just corporately working on the actual gaming components and everything we have about 25 uh we'll need about well it'll be about 100 people here pretty soon so wow. not like very soon but we're, we're gonna expand appropriately but i can see it i can see us moving into a bigger facility for sure
3: lots of sleepless nights adam
10: yeah, I'm, we have three young boys under six. So.
3: Oh boy! <laughs> right. I, forgot, I forgot about that component of this story. For you, is not only are you uh, spearheading this uh, growing uh, yeah. this growing business, you also have a family life as well. So it's an interesting balance. It's isn't been it? a
10: wild ride. I and mean, four years ago, we we had a little tiny escape room, and and it's 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 expanded very very quickly.
1: So can you tell us any of the cities that
10: you'll be appearing
1: in, or are those details so under wraps?
10: I. Uh, so right off the bat, we're going to start off with a, a bunch of stores in the greater Toronto area, uh, and then we're going to work our way west and then just kind of scatter throughout. And in the United States? Uh, first one's going up in Louisville. It's actually where they're kind of based out of. So uh, they're just that's their first facility, and then they're going to uh, – I actually don't know. I think Cincinnati, and Nashville, and Las Vegas is their next one.
3: So. Ooh, Las Vegas! That's perfect for Vegas. You made a, a great analogy. Uh, what, what is that? Top t- golf. Top golf, and and the way Top golf has has gone international and gone across yeah. North America. Awesome. Uh, I don't know if we made that that connection the last time you we were here, but uh, I, I could see this taking off in a similar fashion.
10: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's uh, Top golf seems like a lot of fun. I I would love to do it. It the the it uh, looks like such a fun thing. Uh, the one advantage Activate has is it has a million different types of games yeah. for everybody, right? If you're not into golf, Activate has the ability to change. And the nice thing that we have here is that we can program a new game and upload it to every facility instantaneously. Oh, wow.
1: Well, this is so so exciting. Congratulations, Thank you by you so the way. Much. This is a great Winnipeg success story. We are super excited for you. And I'm excited to get back to Activate sometime in the near future. Thank you. Adam Schmidt, co-owner, co-creator of Activate and The Real Escape, Activate, expanding across Canada and the United States and potentially the world. Ren we have been telling you all morning about an investigation into a Canadian Armed Forces member.
2: Yeah, the Reservist is based here in Manitoba, and he's accused of being involved in an organization that promotes hate after a Winnipeg Free Press reporter actually went undercover to try and figure out who was involved in putting up what many have described as multiple neo-Nazi across the city. So yesterday, the Canadian Armed Forces confirmed it's aware of the allegations against this reservist, and it's looking into them. And we know there will be more to come on this story throughout the day. But no matter who is a member of this group or accused of working with this group, it's clear there has been a rise in organizations like it over the past few years. Brian Levin is with the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism, based in California, and joins us now. Good morning, Brian.
5: Thank you so much for
2: having me. Well, I know we've talked to you in the past about uh, hate crimes, hate speech, but knowing that there's organizations like this out there, I think there's lots of us here in Winnipeg that like to pretend it's maybe someone else's problem or some other city's problem or maybe even America's problem, but are we seeing a rise in these groups everywhere in North America? Do we have any sense of how many they are? Well, yes, but you know, here's the thing.
5: I, I think the future is not so much in groups, but in movements. And while, for instance, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center here in the United States found a record number of hate groups. I think what we've been seeing, frankly, has been something a little different, where you have these hate groups and they have a core number of members, but they also have a bunch of fellow travelers that will frequent its sites, its narrative online, but also put their ladle in. Uh, in the hate buffet on other groups and even texts and other folklore to make their own individual uh, type of idiosyncratic and personal uh, uh, prejudice. And so what I think is so interesting here is we actually have someone who appears to be affiliated with an actual group uh, certainly is is of concern if they're in a sensitive military uh, position as alleged.
3: So when we talk about uh, the rise uh, of this uh, thought, I guess, more so and and these philosophies versus maybe a, a, a growth, if, I, if I'm understanding you properly, Brian, uh, as opposed to a growth in terms of groups and the size of these groups, is it just become more acceptable in certain circles to share these types of views, uh, maybe things that... People felt inwardly and never spoke of outside the home. They feel more comfortable speaking them in public or pseudo-public forums like uh, darker places of the Internet.
5: I I think you hit it exactly right. You know, in the past, you used to have to buy the album. You used to have to join the group. uh, And and now you can, you know, put together your own uh, Mixtape of hate, if you will. And look, uh, here in the United States, we've seen uh, some disturbing uh, issues, as well as, by the way, in Canada. Although Canada came off last year, and we have it in our report at Prof. Levin um, uh, Twitter, we have our full report, which includes Canada. Canada actually had a decline last year after hitting a record in 2017. But the bottom line is we are seeing hate expressed in hate crimes uh... and we've seen increases in recent years including canada which just came off a record uh... we've we've also seen however this normalization of white supremacy and nazism so we're seeing for instance up, uh, up in Canada, as you've seen, uh, this member uh, of the Canadian military. Uh, whereas south of the border, same news cycle, we're seeing kids do a Nazi salute uh, in, uh, in a sporting team event. Uh, so... We've seen a normalization of white supremacy, and what I think is so interesting, it occurs across a spectrum. Some folks will refuse to use Nazi and Klan symbols because they think it's bad branding, but they still don't want people of color and people of non-Christian faith in their country. And it's a a worldwide international trend, and this is what is so head-scratching for our Canadian friends who are a tolerant society, and that is... As um, populations diversify, we are seeing, particularly among young people, young people are online more, and they're being exposed into this rabbit hole, which starts with stuff like, it's okay to be white, and then ends with Nazi symbology in many cases.
1: Brian, I'm just wondering, does the fact that we encourage so many messages now of inclusivity, and you mentioned the word tolerance... Uh, maybe that sometimes these hate groups or people who subscribe to this manner of hate. They're, it's just an act of revolt, as though, you can't tell me what to do. Uh, you want me to be this way? I'm going to be that way.
5: I think you hit it exactly on the head. And, and one of the things we're seeing, just bear with me, we're, particularly with the younger cohort, they're diversifying the most. And we're not only at a time of ethnic change, uh, but also uh, cultural change, and what hate groups have always been successful at doing is leveraging leveraging this amorphous fear, for instance, of change, and putting a face on it. And that face is often darker and non-Christian. And once once that toxic mold uh, gets out there in society, as I said, we're seeing people go down a rabbit hole where they then get put into these echo chambers where they're talking to like-minded folks, or even. Some self-radicalizing, or joining groups. We're seeing all kinds of combinations. So what I'm saying is it occurs across the spectrum. Some people are more involved in groups. Some people are more involved in more of a personal hate journey on the internet. But the bottom line is we can't see these kind of folks uh, in active duty military positions.
2: So what do we do about this? Because I'm sort of it's upsetting to hear that a younger generation might be getting involved when they're the ones growing up into a more inclusive society and seeing that diversity and what we can gain and grow and learn from a more diverse society. And so if you have sort of um, young younger people adopting into this, it's worrisome because they should be the ones that are pushing back against this. This should be a mindset from, you know, 60, 70, 80 years ago. So is it an education thing or or where do we go it, with what how we fix this or, or push back against it? That
5: is such a great point, and for the most part, what we know about younger folks is that they're diversifying more, they're on the Internet more, and yes, they are indeed more tolerant uh, than their grandparents, but we have this segment, we have this segment that fears change, and they regard... Uh, white nationalism, which is really white supremacy, uh, as as the new counterculture that's hearing their message, hearing their concerns, hearing their fears, when they believe others aren't talking to them or legitimizing them. So what we have to do is try and get people in dialogues earlier before they go down that rabbit hole. But bottom line, listen to this: ABC Washington Post poll, 2017 after Charlottesville, nine percent of Americans, not Canadians, said that. Um, Nazi views are acceptable, and here in the united states forty four percent of Americans say that whites are under attack, and about fourteen to sixteen percent say whites are under attack and people of color aren 't so we know that there 's a spectrum of of concern and fear, some of it at the hardest edges are, are indeed this this uh, overt white nationalism. Uh and I think we have to uh have our communal institutions which uh are, are declining in trust retake the stage and say, no, whatever party you belong to White nationalism is against the Canadian ethos, as well as the United States ethos as well.
3: Brian, just a, a moment or two here to a- answer this one. How much of of this fear-mongering and uh, the message involves the collapse of society overall? And who are you going to be with as society um, uh, falls apart?
5: Yeah. Great point. Bottom line is, this: as you say, it doesn't occur in a vacuum. We're not only seeing a lack of trust in these communal institutions that hold us together over decades, whether it's the media, academia, government, we're also seeing people believe that uh, race relations are, are worse than they've been in in decades, and we're more polarized in our politics and we're entrenched in that polarization. And what do we have? We have the internet and also sometimes a media that puts coarseness over discussion.
1: Brian Levin is with the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism based in California, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Brian, thank you very much for this. We appreciate your time.
5: Thank you so much. Hopefully the United States will take Canada's lead. Canada had a decline after a record. We in the United States are seeing the fifth consecutive increase in American cities uh, in uh, 2018, and that increase has extended into 2019.
1: Why don't we start with the the maybe the most obvious poll in the world. Like sometimes you see these polls and these studies and you go, w- who funded this? Like who decided <laughs> this was something that we needed to do research on? The headline is nearly half of Canadians experience <laughs> post-vacation blues before they return home. Only half? <laughs>
2: Only exactly. I kind of I think I filed this in the no kidding category, but it was done by Kayak, which obviously uh, is in the travel industry. It's where you can go to kind of book different things. And so they've come out with this uh, survey that finds that you get that feeling of sadness before your vacation is even over. But it actually listed a couple of things that I try really hard to avoid before I even go on vacation. And it said some of the things that people worry about are coming home to a messy house, stocking an empty fridge meal planning or doing laundry. And so that got me wondering what other people do before they leave to kind of get rid of that stress. Like I actually work really hard and it it, it, my mom used to do this when I was younger, and I hated it. And now that I have kids and go on vacation, I'm always like, "Everybody clean up the house before we leave," because I do not want to come home to a messy house. I don't know why I just made my voice sound like that either. When I'm you were imitating your mom, and your maybe. mom's
3: listening right now. <laughs> she does DC, like to listen. from And that now you're going to get a text message for imitating but, her like that. But you know what? Your mom sounds a lot like my mom. Yeah. And, and my mom would have said it a lot more snarkily, but she would Is have said it? exactly the same thing, and she might have used some some more colorful language that we wouldn't use on radio, but we're the same way in my house. Uh, Jackie, uh, I'm going to admit this on the air. Now we actually have somebody that comes and cleans our floors and, And bathrooms and stuff every other Friday. And so Thursday night is, every other Thursday night is the worst day ever because we (laughs) clean up for the cleaners. But when everything's clean on Friday, there's nothing like it. And they're actually coming before we go away. Smart. Yeah. Now the downside is we have a a house sitter coming. One of my brothers is going to come and stay at the house. He better not screw this up. So if he's listening, the house better be in the same condition. That we leave it in or There's there will be uh, trouble. And uh, But yeah, I think that's a very popular mantra for people is I do not want to come home to a dirty house. I think it's super stressful because you're already coming in with your luggage and whatever things you might have bought on your trip. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know how long it takes you to empty a suitcase, McNabb or McGarry. But for me, standard is about two to three weeks. Yep. Oh my gosh! Yep. And I'm still working how, what, out, still working why? out of the suitcase. I, why don't, is know. That a I like, don't know.
2: Thing. I don't know. Empty it. Get it done with. What you're like? I've watched people in my family go through their suitcase after a vacation, days after it's been sitting there. And like, why? Why can't you just unpack it?
1: I still haven't uh, fully emptied my carry-on bag from my Brett. trip to Las
3: Vegas. That was in June. I know. My brother. I love it. (laughs) I think my backpack still has stuff in it from Croatia. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I only have a couple of pairs of my
1: favorite underwear in that backpack. (laughs) The stocking and empty fridge though, that wouldn't stress me out. I would be more stressed out depending on the length of the vacation on what's in the fridge and what has potentially gone bad. I actually try to make it so that when I leave, the only thing the only things in the fridge are stuff that are not gonna spoil. Uh, right away like I, I try not to to stock up on groceries heavily before going on vacation because I don't want them to just go to waste so I don't mind coming home to an empty fridge because usually what happens is I'll come home from the vacation too tired to do anything Santa Lucia pizza and then the next day I figure out my life
3: Loren, uh, it's the countdown taking Brett's point to the next step because we have kids. And so milk is a big, always a concern. Jerry Seinfeld does the great bit on milk. Uh, Do you need milk? Have you got milk? Do you need more milk? Is the milk going to go bad? (laughs) You're sitting here thinking, do I need milk now? And so we're always thinking about milk and whether or not we need it and whether or not we should be buying it or not buying it. And... As you wind down and you make your way towards vacation, it's making sure you consume every last drop of milk in the house before you walk out the door.
2: Oh, yeah. It's like the night before you go is six glasses of milk per person and nine salads because you're like I'm not letting this lettuce go to waste. But I actually... I actually have changed some of my vacation strategy, and I don't know if anyone else does this. Like I used to squeeze out every last drop of vacation, you know, like book the latest possible flight home, yes, know, drive home at night, all those things. And now I do. I'm inclined to do that less and less because of the things like the fridge or the food that might be in it, or the need to have like two hours to unpack my suitcase so it's not sitting there two months later. Two hours.
3: Well, we've ha- we have two conflicting text messages on this front with regard to the laundry and the putting away of the luggage, okay? <laughs> Andrew, good. Andrew clearly grew up with Brett and I because he <laughs> says laundry timeline is this. Wash, 45 minutes. Dry, 60 minutes. Put away, 7 to 10 business days. That's accurate, I would say, regardless of whether it's coming out of a suitcase or coming out of a laundry basket.
1: Hang and, on, but just a quick thought on that. When yeah. I used to live in my buddy's basement, uh, my laundry I would just dump it on the couch and it would just sit there. So I would just pull socks and underwear out of this pile. I would sometimes use the pile as a pillow and take a
2: nap. Oh, you got
3: You know what Jeff Braun calls his clothes dryer? His extra dresser. <laughs> <laughs> and Eve is on the other side. He says, oh boy, you people haven't heard of a bed bug protocol, have you? Every time you come home from somewhere, it's emptied the night of and the luggage actually stays outside the house before we spray it. We did, and we we
1: we heard this. Uh, we had somebody on. Our show actually, who in fact suggested that you leave the the luggage out, so that's a that's a good tip. I would also point out one of you mentioned. I think it was you, Greg. You mentioned the word consume, and that's another thing that contributes to the vacation blues. Is depending on how much you consume while you're on vacation, because you wake up that last day and you've had you've say you've been drinking for five days straight. You're gonna, of course, you're gonna have.
3: The blues, because that's what alcohol does. You know, and you've blown the budget, or you spend more than you wanted to, and well, the alcohol made you do it in the first place. So of course, there's going to be some regret. And that's the other side is, is is staying within the budget on the on the vacation as well. That that's a, a big part. I don't think it shows up in this survey, Loren, but I think that's a big deal for for all of us.
2: Oh, I think that's I think that's exactly what happens. I just think you know we use this vacation as this mental escape. And so you, I actually – you get really good at putting things out of sight, out of mind or not thinking about it and then it's like when does reality begin to, for you? So this whole idea that it begins for some like a couple of days before you come home or is it on the flight home or sometimes – I think you mentioned, Greg, you're sad already about your vacation <laughs> even though you haven't even gone on it.
3: Yeah, because when I get back, it's going to be September. <laughs> I, like come on. What was I thinking? Not the I way to this go about this. No, I think the more, no. as you
2: guys know, I live by the more vacation, the merrier.
1: Yeah, so. well, you have many vacation days yet to burn. <laughs> I'm sure. So uh, I we're, may or
2: may not be here tomorrow. I don't know. We're already it's a fly by the seat of your vacation pants kind of week. We're know?
1: already not expecting to see you at all in November <laughs> or December. Gonna nickname Loren Transit Tom. We just gotta yeah, cause quickly mention. We mentioned. don't know if she's gonna
3: show up or not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we just got to mention this other poll real quick here uh, from Angus Reed: Meatless Millennials, younger Canadians feeding growth of plant-based meat substitutes. I was actually kind of surprised at what I saw here, Loren. Uh, what was the gist of this one?
2: Well, this is uh, by Angus Reed, and they're just looking at the idea of all these Beyond Meat burgers or mock meat or all those sorts of things, and that they performed beyond expectations as far as like stock is concerned it's the younger Canadians. so uh only four in ten of canadians have tried them but 45 percent between the ages sorry 58 percent between the ages of 18 and 34 are more likely to try this sort of beyond meat or these mock meat or what else what else are we calling them like beyond burger i think is what i was, for
3: some of it when so, i was when i was a kid my grandma used to feed me something called mock chicken
2: so, yeah, like, I don't think that's the same. I think that was a chemical. I think it is the same and I idea. think this is a plant. But these, so these are all <laughs> plant-based protein stuff. Oh gosh, I'd like to know what that mock chicken is. I have to actually say, okay, so it says 45% of Canadians are inclined to feel the plant-based trend is more of a fad than a new normal, but the younger generation, so 58% have already tried these products compared to say forty percent of the regular population. I have done none of them. I have not done a Beyond Burger or a Beyond Meat or anything like that yet. I mean, I eat a lot of plant stuff, plant yeah. plant based stuff.
1: <laughs> I know superstores. I think they've got their own line, and I've seen uh, yes. another brand advertised on Canadian television. And I know the the Impossible Burger, I believe, is is supposed to make its way into Burger King I think well the I what know,
2: burger the impossible
1: yeah so it's a different brand it's called the impossible burger i actually tried i had a bite of one when i went to las vegas because my uh the person i was with had was is a vegetarian and tried the impossible burger at wall burgers and i just had a, a burger burger if you had given me the Impossible Burger and just told me it was a burger, I wouldn't have even given it a second thought. I wouldn't have questioned mm-hmm. it. I could tell the difference between like once I did the taste test, but they're really good, and I think it's a great alternative for vegetarians who still who maybe converted uh, to being a vegetarian, but kind of miss the taste of of what meat used to be for
3: them. Thirty one chemicals and spices. Thirty one chemicals the, and spices in the plant based right. burgers. Sure.
2: So, so maybe your mock, grandma's mock chicken was just the same thing. Uh, well,
3: this is what I'm suggesting, that perhaps uh, we need to investigate. It sounds great to have a, a plant-based meat substitute, but it's plant-based. It's not all plants. It, it's got some other ingredients that uh, bear... Uh, noting and researching, and in my opinion, and I'm maybe grasping at straws to make myself feel better about not wanting to try them.
1: Well, and I think what, one of the things too about those is if you're eating a, a burger, then you're not thinking about your health, regardless of whether it's made that's of, a good of point. meat or of plant-based materials. It's not a veggie burger, right? There's a well, difference. A burger's
2: healthy. It's just well, it's, what you put almost, on it, yeah. don't you think? Well, like, yeah, but I mean I'm, I'm not going
1: I'm not just gonna eat a burger patty. I'm gonna I'm gonna put the cheese and the mayo and the bacon and the and the fried egg and you know, et cetera, if you make them like
2: I do, mixing a little oatmeal into the oatmeal the burger, it really keeps them moist, and then you don't need a ton of stuff on them.
1: I would still put the stuff on them though. I know you would. Because I, I, I like would. the stuff.
2: You'd probably you'd probably put the stuff on it and then lean up against your pli- pile of clothes like a picnic table and just relax with your condiment-based burger and your laundry that you haven't put away in nine well,
3: weeks well if you have tea towels in the laundry it's perfect you got napkins <laughs> don't yeah. need to
2: go in the kitchen
1: <laughs> hey thanks for listening to the start podcast we are available on apple podcast google podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts subscribe now and never miss an episode and if you like what you hear rate the show tell us what you think